and how we're heading in one direction while looking for something else in a completely opposite direction. And I guess that, that really leads me to, to where we are today, diverse paths, unified wisdom. This was the topic I was given. Um, and uh, I was given actually a very specific set of things to cover. It was, it was nice because sometimes they don't, people don't give you any topic at all, you know, but this was like on the other extreme. Your session should include an interactive element. People should go away with X, Y, and Z takeaway. I was just waiting for the marking scheme. I appreciate it. Um, but as you can imagine, there are diverse parts to talking about the topic of diverse parts. So I may kind of veer off the path, but I'll stay on the topic and I'll try and share some things with you that um, are resonating with me on this topic. And I think it's a topic that um, all of you have thought about, all of us are constantly thinking about, and what the kind of main theme of it will be is finding our individuality. Um, and I think that's something we've got to talk about again and again, because I don't think you actually stop fighting that battle. I think our whole life we're fighting to actually be our authentic self and until you actually become self-realized that fight never ends you know and so I think this is something definitely I hope uh, will uh, resonate and, and, and will, um, will be beneficial for you. Um, here you can see the parampara, the panchatattva on the top. Um, and then all the amazing associates of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu who um, really gave shape to this movement. Um, if you really want to know about the history of the movement, uh, the history of the... Uh, it's funny actually, the other day someone came to me and said, should I know, should I find out about the history of the movement? I said, yeah, of course you should. Like, this is our parampara. He goes, really? We should really look at the history of our movement. I said, yeah. He said, so I should go on Netflix then. <laughs> Peacock. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting, I was like, that was his concept of finding about the history of the movement. And I said, yeah, there are things that happened in the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, of course, you can also watch, clearly, as we found out yesterday, who's watching what. Um, but there's more to the movement than just what happened in the last 30, 40 years. There's 300, 400 years of history of this movement. And when we understand that, when we understand the personalities, their contribution, their dedication, their devotion, um, maybe it helps to put our whole movement in a lot of perspective. And so sometimes people think the movement is what we see in the last 30, 40 years. And of course, that definitely is. But there's a whole movement out there. And sometimes this is just a really, really simple way if you want to summarize the whole parampara of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, you can summarize it like this. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, <coughs> he came to the world as Prema Purushota, the form of the Lord that was exhibiting pure love and awakening that within anyone and everyone. And therefore we can say Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu displayed 
love of Godhead, like nobody else. Bhaktivinoda Thakur says, how do you know Mahaprabhu is God? And he says, many people may give many arguments. It's in Shastra, the Acharyas say, many people may say he's God because he performs so many extraordinary activities. But Bhaktivinoda Thakur, he says, the main thing that establishes without a shadow of a doubt that Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is the Supreme Lord is that he displayed an unparalleled intensity of prema and he was able to awaken that within others and he said only God could do this. Um, so Mahaprabhu displayed love of Godhead, he displayed the essence of what this parampara is meant to deliver. And then it said, here you can see under the Panchatattva there are six figures in a white, they're known as the six Goswamis. And it said that what they did is they documented love. Because Mahaprabhu's love was said to be like a waterfall. It was so intense. It was so, um, uh, just such velocity, such um, power, that it was almost like unattainable for anyone. Like you can't, I wouldn't recommend you take shower under a waterfall. Uh, it's, too, it's too much. But what the Goswamis did is uh, they took the waterfall of Mahaprabhu's prema and they made it into an ocean. And that ocean anyone could then dive into and bathe and also experience that same love. So therefore Rupa Goswami writes the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, the ocean of devotional uh, mellows. So Mahaprabhu displayed love, the Goswamis documented love. And then the followers of the Goswamis were Shamananda, Naratan, and Srinivas. And they went to the localities, to uh, Godadesh, to Bengal, to Orissa. And in the localities, they were distributing, they were carrying the books, they were carrying the holy name. And therefore, they were distributing. So Mahaprabhu was in the 15th century, the Goswamis were in the 16th century, the Three followers of the Goswamis were in the 16th, 17th century. Then in the 17th century, we have uh, Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur. And what he did is he deepened the tradition. His writings, his commentaries, his uh, revelations from his devotion-filled heart took the parampara and its realizations to another level. Therefore, you even see Srila Prabhupada, when he writes his commentaries, on uh, Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam, then his main source of information is Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur. So Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur is really known. Some say he was an incarnation of Rupa Goswami. He knew those mellows just as deep. And uh, he came to deepen the tradition. And then later on, there was an attack. There was an attack on the Gaudiya tradition. And, uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries, we have Baladev Vidya Bhusan, uh, who creates a commentary, who writes a commentary on the Vedanta in order to um, confirm the authenticity that the Gaudiyas are actually a real Sampradaya. And then uh, in the 19th century, we have Bhaktivinoda Thakur, who defends the um, Sampradaya against the degradation of the Sahajyas. And then in the 20th century and uh, beyond, you have Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur and Srila Prabhupada who um, basically uh, deliver that to the whole world. So that, in a nutshell, 
is the whole of the Gaudiya Sampradaya. Mahaprabhu displayed love. The Goswamis documented love. Srinivas Naratam Shamananda, they distributed that to the localities. Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur came and deepened it. Baladev Vidya Bhustan and Bhaktivinoda Thakur were defenders of the tradition, protectors. They defended. And then Srila uh, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur and Srila Prabhupada, they just delivered it, delivered it to the whole world. Paschatya, Desha, Dharvini, delivering the Western world from all of the misconceptions and delivering the greatest gift. So uh, you can see it's a transcendental conspiracy. Uh, every single generation is just making it better. In the Vinkus presentation, it was the idea that good times can lead to bad times. But in the Gaudiya Parampara, they knew how in every generation to take the good times and how to make them even better. How to grow it, how to develop it, how to make a unique contribution. And therefore we see every generation of the Parampara makes a unique contribution. And every individual has a unique personality. And uh, that is so much a part of uh, Krishna consciousness. Because sometimes people think when you come to this movement, you lose your individuality. But now we begin to see how much individuality there is in the Krishna consciousness movement. Today I thought how to um, present this, and I thought it would be nice to meditate a little bit on our Acharyas. And uh, specifically, I'm going to center. Uh, a little bit more on Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur because as we know this year is the 150th anniversary of Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur and so it's nice to meditate a little bit on his character, his contribution, his uh, incredible devotion and his personality. But before we speak about Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur we must speak about his spiritual master and here you see a very, very famous picture of Gorkishore Das Babaji. Many of you have seen this picture. If you do a Google search on Gorkishore Das Babaji and you click on the tab Images, you'll only ever get one image. There's no more. There's only one. Does anyone know the story behind this image? The story behind this image is that Gorakishore Das Babaji, this is a legend in the Gaudiya Math, but it seems to be quite confirmed, that Gorakishore Das Babaji in his whole life never allowed anyone uh, to take a photo of him. And he certainly didn't take a selfie. Um, in his whole life, he never allowed anyone to photograph him. So how do we get this photo? Because when he passed away, it said that Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur took his body, he held it up, he had the held, he had his held his head straight, and he had someone paint, but he made sure the painter painted him out of the picture. So basically, this is a picture of Gorakishore Das Babaji um, while Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was holding him up because they wanted to have at least one photo by which they could remember him and worship him. Uh, that says something about such a personality. Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, on the other hand, was a 
a unique individual. Uh, he was taking many pictures. Uh, he was bringing the media in. I mean, if Pakistan Sarsari Thakur would be here today, he would be blowing up on Instagram. <laughs> uh, many, many pictures. He was bringing the media in. He was uh, putting himself out there. He was uh, drawing attention to himself. Gorkishor Das Babaji was moving away from the world. They said that Gorkishor Das Babaji, he would uh, chant in lava trees. Now, I mean, the Vedanta is nice if you want to chant in a lava tree. It's not too bad in the Vedanta. You have to understand Indian lava trees, Indian uh, toilets, what they are like. Uh, Gorkishor Das Babaji was chanting there. He was going away from the people. He was becoming a recluse. He was uh, interested only in his own bhajan. He never felt himself worthy that anyone should even uh, come in contact with him. Um, but Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was the complete opposite. Such individuals there are. I'm just trying to share with you a little bit about how individual they are in the way they express their devotion is really not stereotyped. Srila uh, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur once said, my spiritual master gave me three instructions. Number one, never go to Calcutta. Number two, never make any disciples. And number three, never associate with any materialistic person. And he said, I followed every single one. Yes, he said, because I never made any disciples. I saw that anyone who ever came to me asking for instruction was actually my spiritual master teaching me through their own humility, enthusiasm, and uh, desire for seva to Krishna. I never went to Calcutta because every time I went to that city, I only stayed in the Bhagavazar temple, which is not part of this uh, Prakrita material world. Therefore, I never went to Calcutta. And he said, I never associated with materialistic people because association means to take something from someone. He said, whenever I associated with the people of this world, I never took anything from them. I was only giving. And therefore, I never associated with any materialistic person. So that satisfies the that yes, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was completely aligned with his spiritual master, but still a complete individual, a complete um, personality is in, in his own right, because this is Krishna consciousness. Yet Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was also completely dependent, but not imitating his spiritual master following the essence and realizing that all empowerment was coming from his guru. One time they were going on a boat across the Jalangi, and uh, you know what Indian boats are like, very loud. Everything in India is loud. Um, so one person, they were sitting there on the boat, and um, one person, he said, uh, Guru Maharaj speaking to Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, he said, you are just like this, motor. You're moving. And when you move, the sound of your movement is resounding and you're filling the world with Harikatha. 
mindset, yeah. for your spiritual master, he was a bhajana nandi. Um, so Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur could detect some of the maybe minimization of his spiritual master. And he told the person, you see the motor? And he pointed to the motor. And he said, you see that wire? And then he pointed to the wire. And then he was pointing all the way where the wire was leading. And the wire went all the way to the back of the boat. And there was a battery. And he said, I'm like that motor. And my spiritual master is like that battery. All the power. All the purity. All the potentiality to do anything in my life is coming from my spiritual master. So that was so powerful. So this is Krishna consciousness, to be completely aligned, completely dependent on the parampara, but at the same time a complete individual, completely authentic, completely uh, yourself. You have to be yourself. Um, even one time I remember I asked Kadamba Kanga Maharaj, I was like, Maharaj, can you show me how to play Jayarada Madhav on the harmonium? So Maharaj was very kind. He took out two harmoniums and I was, so there I was trying to imitate him. And then he looked at me and he said, you'll never be able to sing like me. <laughs> <laughs> at that moment I surrendered to the fact that it was never going to happen in this life. Later on he said to me, you'll never sing like me. And he said, I would never do a class with an acronym in it. <laughs> <laughs> he said, it's against my religion. <laughs> and then he said, but you have to be you. He said, me and you, we're different, but we're aligned. We're on the same mission. So you have to be you. You can't be me, and I'm definitely not going to be you. And uh, in that way, it's such a powerful thing. Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was such an individual. Here you see actually, Gorgishwar Das Babaji, his clothing was he would go to the burning vat where the crematorium was. And whatever clothes were used to cover the dead bodies, he would take those clothes and he would wear them. Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was slightly different. He was going for top quality only, the best, silk. Mm. <laughs> uh, very good cloth, meeting the eminent people, uh, going out, meeting celebrities. Gorkishoras Babaji would not meet any materialistic person. Niskinjanasya Bhagavad Bhajanan Mukasya Param Vadan Jidamasur Bhagasagarasya. Mahaprabhu quoted this verse when he talked about Katraparudra and he said, I will not meet anyone in any materialistic position. Um, but Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was reaching the people and he was making a way. Um, das Babaji was so humble he couldn't correct anyone. Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was going out to the world and he was telling everyone where they're going wrong. He was not uh, shy. Even Prabhupada said the same thing. Prabhupada said, I do not make any distinction. I criticize everyone equally. <laughs> um, so Bhakti was so outspoken 
that uh, people were after his life. Once the police of Birnagar, they came to Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur and they said, oh, Swamiji, there are people who want to kill you. They said, look, it's not that we don't take bribes and kill people. You do that every single day. But you're a sadhu, so we won't do it to you. But we want you to know people want your life because you're speaking out so strong against them. Bhakti Saraswati Thakur would walk around with two bodyguards. One of his bodyguards, his name was Mocha Singh. Somehow in the biography it says Mocha Singh. The main uh, detail it gives about uh, Mocha Singh's life was that he could eat 27 chapatis in one sitting. <laughs> Somehow that appears as the main biography of Singh. So he was a huge. I mean, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur himself was tall, but Mocha Singh was huge. And uh, and later on, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur said, actually, I don't need him. I can do without. But he said, it's good he comes with me, add some prestige. <laughs> add some prestige to when people meet me, like a big bodyguard. People, they can tell me he's an important man. I should listen to what he has to say. So Bhakti Siddhanta is this completely different type of thinking, you see? It's completely different. He was, uh, here he is in a car. Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur rolled up to Radha Kund in a car. He <laughs> just walked up. I came to Vedanta in a Dina's Mac. It's a good car. Driving could be better. <laughs> <laughs> but even I sometimes like, who am I? I'm just even I sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable about turning up to places in like a murk or something. It's a little like, what? You know, in a murk. Um, but Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati he just came. He's so bold. Here he was hosting. You see this? He was ready to host all eminent personalities. One time he even told the devotees in Gaudiya Math, uh, we're hosting all these eminent personalities, make meat. Make meat? Meat? Yes. Yes, Guru Maharaj. Make meat. And then uh, Bhakti Rakshak Sridhar Maharaj, he came to Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur and he said, Guru Maharaj, people are criticizing us. How are we making meat in the math? And Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur looked at him and said something profound. He said, you don't understand and they don't understand that thousands of lifetimes ago, I made a vow that I'll do whatever it takes to spread the Krishna consciousness in the world. So I'm ready to go to any length. You have to host them. You have to make them feel comfortable. And eventually we'll teach them. So I'm just trying to paint a picture here of how it's all very, very individual. It's all very, very... Uh, we all have an authentic contribution to make. I have this slide actually at the after yesterday, yesterday's meme competition. I was having second thoughts about the memes. <laughs> <laughs> that quiz was really dodgy. <laughs> that was like asking for trouble. You know? 
outfit with and they're like, it's like beautiful, it's more offensive. <laughs> The hardest and simultaneously easiest thing to do in the world is to be yourself. This is a complete paradox. The easiest and simultaneously the hardest thing to do in life yourself. Mark Twain says, to be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. I don't think this fight to be yourself ends until the point of self-realization. It's just because we're shrouded with superficiality. The whole process of bhakti actually is to get rid of all superficiality. One French philosopher calls this destructive enlightenment. Says that there's, uh, according to our Vedic tradition, there's only two things. If you get rid of these two things, you become completely your real self. And those two things are number one, anartas, and number two, upadis. Anartas means unwanted qualities, unwanted habits, unwanted character traits, uh, superfluous to who we really are. And upadis means all the designations, all the labels, all the temporary identities that we accept, thinking that to be our real self. And so the whole process of Krishna consciousness is to remove upadis, to remove anartas. And uh, this is destructive enlightenment. This philosopher says destructive enlightenment means that enlightenment is not when there's nothing more to add, enlightenment is when there's nothing left to take away. Basically, that's what we're trying to do. In our Krishna consciousness, what we're basically trying to do is take away all the superficiality. It's interesting that there's only one leg on which Dharma is standing in Kali Yuga, which is? And I thought about that for many, many, you know, why is that the only? Because when you look at the world, it just seems like a completely untruthful place. So why do we say that truthfulness is the only leg on which dharma is standing? Because uh, one explanation could be because in the imperfection and in the uh, confusion of the world that we're living in, our honesty, our ability to be truthful and open and real is our only saving grace. If you lose that, if you lose your truthfulness, you can lose your compassion, you can lose your austerity, you can lose your cleanliness, but the moment you lose your truthfulness, it's the final nail in the coffin. Because it's only your truthfulness that can take you out of your illusion. And therefore, uh, to be honest, to be open, to be truthful, first to oneself. That's, uh, I think Nanda Gopal was mentioning yesterday about journaling and how we want that to be 100%. And the reason why I think journaling is so powerful 
is because it's a place of confession. But the first and easiest place to confess is to confess to yourself, to be real with yourself, to at least experience authenticity in your own being. And so um, I'm just beginning this presentation by talking about how we have to find authenticity and individuality. And I just want to ask you, why is it so hard for us to be our real individual self? And I want you to really think about your own life, your own experiences. Why do you think that the world we're living in, the way we carry ourselves, is often so inauthentic? Why do you think that is? And I'll just tell you why I'm doing this exercise, because then we can understand in our own lives and as a community what we need to fight against in order to empower everyone to be really real. So can I ask for some of your input? Why do you think in the age we're living in today, it's so hard to just be yourself? Expectations. Yeah. Expectations are such an interesting thing. Sometimes I liken expectations to waves in the ocean. The thing is, they're endless. Uh, they keep coming at you and the thing about a wave is that if you learn to ride the right wave at the right time it can take you to the heights but if you do the wrong waves at the wrong time it can drown you and so sometimes we think we have to get rid of all expectations but expectations are like the waves but you've got to become an expert surfer to understand how to ride the ocean of the waves of expectation in this world Otherwise, the waves of expectation, they'll drown you and you become so uh, inauthentic and overburdened by the opinions of others. And plenty of people have opinions about you. Um, and if you want to find them out, open an Instagram account. Your people will be there with you. Say more about so therefore our our means of looking at the world is based on what we see mm -hmm. and we can't see what's inside so therefore we, we don't look from inside ourselves so we look externally only into the world and see the world as it is so we go from there we tend to invest in the visible parts of our lives and not the invisible parts of our lives yeah yeah it's like uh Normally, you never check if you have uh, holes in your socks. But if you're going to the temple, then you may check because you know what everyone will see. Um, once I gave that analogy in a class, and I actually had holes in my socks. <laughs> it was good because I got 30 pairs of new socks the next week. Yeah, we, uh, a devotee lives in the invisible world. But we're so much apt to respond to the visible world. Uh, so much of Srila Prabhupada, his life was the invisible investments that nobody saw. 
Nobody saw Srila Prabhupada in Radha Damodar for five, six years. No one saw that. No one saw Srila Prabhupada when he was alone in his room uh, in the early morning hours, uh, spending time with the Bhagavatam. No one saw that. No one saw the struggle that Srila Prabhupada went through when he was all alone in the Bowery. No one saw the heart attack that Srila Prabhupada had on the Jaladutta. No one saw all those invisible things, but those were the very building blocks of why he was able to do so much. Um, but we live so much uh, responding to the visible world. So thank you. Yeah. Fear of judgment. I guess that's linked to expectations and opinions of others. But yeah, what other people think about us and how they we want to be accepted, we want to be acknowledged, we want to be appreciated, we want to... Everyone in this world is insecure. Because Om Purnam, the Purnam Ilam, Purnam Priyam, Udachate, we're a part of Krishna's the complete whole and therefore we are also complete units emanating from Him but we've forgotten our completeness because we've forgotten our connection with Krishna. And therefore, everyone in this world, to a greater or lesser extent, feels incomplete. And therefore, uh, we're constantly looking for the um, validation of others to fill our completeness. And therefore, when there is judgment, then there is, then it becomes painful. Yeah, thank you. Just hope that by hiding things away, that somehow magically it will disappear. Therefore, we don't want to deal with it. Ignore it. So uh, kind of imprisoned in a uh, false conception that we try to continue to maintain. So we, uh, we don't know which layer of our identity that we actually are, like there's a mind, there's a different functional identities that we have, so we lose ourselves in a layer of identities. Amazing. And that's why we actually wake up in the morning and do sadhana first. Um, because what that is scientifically meant to do is that the first thing you're doing in the morning is you're connecting with your first identity, your eternal identity, your unchanging identity. And if you connect in the day with your first identity first, 
then every identity, other identity we recognize, that's not actually my identity, that's my role. But what happens is that in today's day and, uh, day and age, people mix up their identity and their role. And they think their role becomes their identity. And when we live as though we are our role, then we, um, then we can become bound in a network of illusion. Fear of judgment, rejection. Was there something else you wanted to say on that? Because we said judgment. Was there something more you were thinking? Losing relationships. Yeah, people re uh, relate to you differently. How do you think that would work? Because if our original self is Sachit Ananda, the soul. Okay, you associate yourself with your narrative and you feel to. Bombarded by so many images, messages, ideas of what you can be, you should be, values, you know. Why do you think it's easier to copy someone than to find the strength? What makes that such an easy thing to do? Because it would seem to be a hard thing to do because you're acting now unnaturally. So what makes it so natural for us to want to copy someone else? What makes that such an easy thing to do? to the judgment being accepted. Yeah. So who wanted to bring that? Yeah. I'll just go really quickly now. You can just say I'm not going to comment on them just really quickly. Yeah. Um, 
you sacrifice your own individuality for something bigger than you, which is commendable, but then you may lose yourself. to find yourself you're so consumed by your own mind you can't see yourself clearly Profit, productivity, and let me add a few more other things to that. Popularity, position, prestige, um, all of these things, power. These are all things by which we uh, sell out to these things. Yeah. So we want to, we're attracted to someone and we want to emulate someone else's life. Yeah. Okay, I mean, we could go on here. The reason I'm sharing all of these things is that it's a very useful list. You can see here, you can see here. These are for our own introspection to maybe go through this list and ask ourselves how many of these things are affecting me? How many of these things are pushing me out of my own authenticity? And it's very useful for all of you as a community to really think about how you can conduct your dealings with each other, your events, your social intercourse with each other in such a way that you circumvent the potentiality of these things happening um, because a lot of the culture of what we set in how we deal with each other actually unknowingly to us is forcing people or pushing people into an inauthentic life sometimes just by the culture of how we interact sometimes it can be done very very innocently but sometimes the way um, things are done actually don't support our uh, inner desire to be our real, real self. And so I'm just sharing some of these things with you. And I'm just going to flip back onto another question, and then I'm going to connect it. In today's day and age, art and craft is kind of put together as one subject. They kind of call it art and craft. But I just want to ask you, what do you think is the difference between art and craft, if there is any? Yeah. Art is sort of like a freedom to, uh, creative freedom, whereas craft is sort of discipline. Art is creative freedom. Craft is discipline. It's following a procedure. It's following a set. Skill value, not 
Yeah, exactly. Like craft has a functional value to get something done in the world, but art is more an expression of your inner self. And is that what you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think like in terms of art is the heart as well. Like in terms of art, you can express yourself. Okay. Beautiful. So art is very much coming from the heart. Craft is maybe coming from the hands. With art, it's it's the journey. With art, it's the journey. It's the moment. It's what we're going through now. With craft, it's the destination, the result, the end product. Nice. Art is original. Oh, art is your hobby, and craft is work. Okay, art is something you do for leisure, because you enjoy it, because it's something which uh, naturally is inspiring to you, whereas craft is a job, it's work, it's... And these are all of the points when we think about that actually Krishna consciousness means to become an artist, actually. That doesn't mean we don't learn craft. All good artists also learn craft. They learn skills, they learn how to um, you know, do things. If you're a musician, you learn how to play the instrument. If you're a writer, you learn grammar, you learn spelling. But the ultimate expression of art is something beyond just those skills. And uh, really, the process of Krishna consciousness is to actually become an artist. They say thousands of people may go to art school, but maybe one person will become an artist. Because an artist means someone who's actually uh, expressing the most authentic uh, thing within their own being. And therefore, if you look at our parampara, if you look at the greatest and most eminent spiritual personalities, they're all actually artists. Uh, they're not just following something uh, out of regulation or something out of uh, convention. Um, they're not just imitating. They're not just um, doing something as a tick box exercise. Uh, they're not just... Uh, functioning out of experience and skill but it's something much deeper than all of those things and the idea is that when you become an artist uh, in Krishna consciousness when you become an artist of bhakti uh, when you find your real contribution your real self that you want to share with the world then uh, you can touch many many hearts That is, uh, that is what we're trying to do. Um, but oftentimes what happens is we practice Krishna consciousness more as a craft than an art. Now again, I, I want to make the point here that it's not that the rules, the regulations, the systemized aspects of Krishna consciousness are bad in any way. 
And it's not even bad that we have expectations to live on a certain way and have like certain cultural expectations of each other. But it has to go beyond that. That's a good foundation. But we actually have to become uh, artists. We actually, what we're looking for, each one of us, is freedom of expression. And this is a very, very famous purport. Um, very, very beautiful purport. And the context of it is that Narada Muni has come to uh, instruct Vyasadeva on how to compile the Bhagavatam. And after he does his job, as Narada Muni does wherever he is, after he's completed his task, that what, he, what he does is he just picks up his veena and he just walks to the next place. And so Prabhupada spends the whole purport talking about freedom. Because if there was ever someone who had freedom, it was Narad Muni. He's free to go anywhere, everywhere, uh, within uh, the three worlds. So this is what Srila Prabhupada says about freedom. Um, and it's amazing, because in practically every single line of this purport, Prabhupada uses the word free. Prabhupada says, every living being is anxious for full freedom because that is his transcendental nature. And this freedom is obtained only through the transcendental service of the Lord. Illusioned by the external energy, everyone thinks that he is free, but actually he is bound up by the laws of nature. A conditioned soul cannot freely move from one place to another, even on this earth, and what to speak of moving from one planet to another. But a full-fledged, free soul, like Narada, always engaged in chanting the Lord's glory, is free to move not only on earth, but also in any part of the universe, as well as in any part of the spiritual sky. We can just imagine the extent and unlimitedness of his freedom which is as good as that of the Supreme Lord. There is no reason or obligation for his travelling and no one can stop him from his free movement. Similarly, the transcendental system of devotional service is also free. It may or may not develop in a particular person even after he undergoes all the detailed formulas. Similarly, the association of a devotee is also free. One may be fortunate to have it or one may not have it even after thousands of endeavours. Therefore, this is the most important, therefore in all spheres of devotional service, freedom is the main pivot. Without freedom, there is no execution of devotional service. The freedom surrendered to the Lord does not mean that the devotee becomes dependent in every respect. To surrender unto the Lord through the transparent medium of the spiritual master is to attain complete freedom of life. And that's the freedom purport. So this, uh, you can read this again, I read it pretty quickly, but you can take some time because Srila Prabhupada is making an incredibly important point that basically everyone is looking for freedom, freedom of expression, freedom to be who they are, freedom to move in the world without judgment. And that authenticity um, 
can only come through spiritual realization and Krishna consciousness. Um, and so that is our main endeavor to find um, our authentic self. Today I was speaking about Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur and how he was such an individual. And uh, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, he also had many illustrious disciples. And it's amazing because if you see all of his disciples, then they were all so individual. They all made such unique contributions. Uh, many, many disciples he had. I think it said Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur had 3,000 disciples. So here I've just picked a few photos just to give you a sense of the variety of individuals who had given their lives to Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur but who had maintained uh, their own individuality. In the top left corner here you have Bhakti Rakshak Sridhar Maharaj. He was someone who was uh, acclaimed by all of his god brothers and by Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur himself as someone of spotless devotion. Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur told him to actually go to the West to preach. When Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur was sending the first devotees to uh, London to preach, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur actually wanted Bhakti Rakshak Sridhar Maharaj to go. But Bhakti Rakshak Sridhar Maharaj, he came to Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur and he said, if you want me to go, I will go. I am sold out to whatever your desire is. But I don't think uh, that is the con best contribution I can make to you. I'm not a big preacher. I'm not the person who will create that institution. My nature is very, very different. But if you tell me to go, I will go. And then later on, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur told him not to go. And so Bhakti Rakshak Sridhar Maharaj never went to London. Uh, another three devotees went instead. And Bhakti Rakshak Sridhar Maharaj, his life became much more of a contemplative life. And what happened is he never became really so much known uh, for widely creating a movement um, of preaching Krishna consciousness. But what he did is by his own example, by his own writings, um, he presented uh, the deepest, um, most uh, amazing reflections on Krishna consciousness and nourishing insights that many devotees refer to uh, even today. Um, even Srila Prabhupada uh, acclaimed Bhakti Rakshak Sridhar Maharaj's uh, writing and his devotion. And that was his contribution. It's not stereotype. It's not that because he didn't go to London and become the big leader that he was in any way less. His contribution was to do something different. Next to him, you have uh, someone called uh, Nishikant Sanyal. He's later on, his initiated name was Bhakti Sudhakar. He was known for his writing as well. He actually had an MA, he had a BA, and he was one of the first of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur's disciples to use their academic acumen to spread uh, uh, writings and the philosophy and the Siddhanta of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. 
he was an ideal grihasta. Here he had Bhakti Raksha Trida Maharaj. They called him like a Kinchana Vaishnava. He was completely uh, disinterested in all material things. Sanyal was a grihasta. But he was very, very unique because it said that he used to go as a grihasta and give all of his earnings to Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. And whatever Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur wanted to give him back as pocket money, um, he would accept that. He was known as an ideal grihasta. Uh, practiced Krishna consciousness in a very different way. He wrote a thesis on uh, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu called Krishna Chaitanya. You can read it today. Even Srila Prabhupada uh, claimed that as a very good work. A different person. Next to him, you have a Kinchan Krishna Das Babaji. He didn't write, he didn't lecture, he didn't manage. All day he chanted. That's what he did. When he was in the mat, he would chant all day. And then some of the devotees came to Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur and they said, You just chant for free. We just tell you you should do some service. Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur said, he can chant all day? They said, yeah. Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur said, it was very rare. Who can do such a thing? He said, I'll prove it to you. And Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, he had the devotees put an advert in the newspaper. And the advert in the newspaper was, lodging will be provided, three square meals will pro be provided, clothing and all other needs will be provided. All you have to do is come to the mat and chant all day. And nobody applied. <laughs> <laughs> and Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur said, just see, he is a unique person. That is his offering. Um, one devotee said he went to a Kinchan Krishna Das Babaji Maharaj and he wanted to understand what was going on. Like, so anyway, he, he had this desire to embrace Kinchan Krishna Das Babaji. So he said he embraced him. And he said that as he put his head next to his heart, he heard the holy name. Possible. Anything's possible. Very, very different. Next to Akinchan Krishna Das is Sadhanand. Sadhanand was from Germany. He was one of the first uh, Western disciples of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. And he first met Bon Maharaj, who was one of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati's uh, Thakur sannyasis who had come to London. And they again an acclaimed, a scholar, a wonderful writer. Here on the bottom left is Sambidananda. Um, he came to the University of London. Put it on a face yourself. <laughs> uh, he was sponsored Nishikant Sanyal on the top. The second one, Nishikant Sanyal, he sponsored Sambidananda because he was a brilliant mind. Uh, you can look at him, he looks very clever. <laughs> and uh, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur gave him the uh, breakdown of a PhD thesis. You can read it even today, History and Literature of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, incredible work. And, uh, and he produced that PhD thesis. Uh, on Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur's uh, under his direction and uh, became a very, very acclaimed. And it's used by scholars even today. Next to him, you have Anand. 
This is Anand Das. In uh, Yamuna Mataji's book, she talks about her interactions with Anand. Anand was Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur's cook. And uh, he just cooked all day. That's what he did. He knew uh, all the recipes, he knew all the ways in which Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur liked to have his prasadam. Uh, and he was so happy every single day to just cook for the Vaishnavas. Uh, basically, he lived out of the kitchen. That's what he did. Next to him, you have Vishnu Priya and Vinod Vani. Uh, they were the first uh, Western lady disciples of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. Um, Vinod Vani, who's on the right, is said that till the end of her life, uh, she maintained very, very strict bhajan. And uh, she actually donated uh, a property in Halston for a temple. Uh, if ever a place needed a temple. <laughs> and that, that temple is still there today. You can go, you can see Halston. So she was, uh, she, she, she uh, started a temple. Amazing. And then on the far right here, you have uh, someone called Kunja Bihari. Later on, he became shrouded in some controversy. But actually, he was the main manager of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. Actually, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur himself said, I didn't create Gaudiya Math. Actually, Kunja Bihari did it. Because Kunja Bihari, he was actually part of the Ramakrishna mission. Ramakrishna missions are incredibly uh, prominent in Bengal and they were organizing like anything. So Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur said, oh, you should also steal from them, steal their ideas. So Kunja Bihari came and he was the one who actually uh, managed and structured the whole of the Gaudiya Math for Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. And he was known as the Seva Vigraha, the person who was always on call, ready. One time Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, he sent a telegram. In that time there was no phones. Or, so he sent a telegram. And Kunja Bihari, he arrived in like three days time. Like that was unheard of. And he was also like having a job outside and everything. So Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur said, you're a busy man, you have your grihastha duties, you have uh, work. How were you able to come here so quickly on my call? And Kunja Bihari said, I structure my life in such a way that I'm always three days ahead so that any time you may call me for service, I'll be ready to come at the drop of a hat. And therefore Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur said, he's the Kunja Dar. Kunja da means uh, one who gives entrance into the grove. So uh, they used to glorify him in Gaudiya Mata. He is given entrance into the grove of how to serve Sri Guru because he knows how to serve like nobody else knows. Just see the variety. Be yourself. Find your own contribution. To be yourself in a world which is constantly trying to make you something else, is the greatest achievement. Competition and comparison uh, 
wrecks our spiritual life to the core. And therefore, to always connect with Vaishnavas, to always connect with community where you can find your authentic self, this is perhaps the best decision you can make in your life. And so, these are some of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur's illustrious disciples. And then, of course, Srila Prabhupada. What a disciple of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. Uh, such a beautiful relationship. One time they asked Srila Prabhupada, can you say something about your spiritual master? Prabhupada closed his eyes. He was quiet. And he said, what can I say? He was a Vaikuntha man. He was uh, someone not of this world. Uh, Prabhupada had so much love for Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. In all these personalities. This is a picture from uh, His Holiness Kadambakanana Maharaj's room. Uh, he asked the devotees to make this picture and he specifically wanted these personalities uh, in the picture because he said, In my life, I learned so much from all these personalities. He said, Brahmananda Kaburai, his love for Prabhupada, when he talked about Prabhupada, it was uh, out of this world. Jananivas, Pankajangri Prabhus said their saintliness, uh, their simplicity, their complete non-enviousness. Like this, he was going through <coughs> every individual. He said, Indradivna Maharaj, he's just reaching out. He said, he's like a transcendental Indiana Jones. <laughs> Amazing. Jayananda Prabhu, his own person. Very different. Uh, of course, I don't want to embarrass His Holiness Sachinanda Maharaj, but he also spoke about Sachinanda Maharaj and he said, I appreciate Maharaj so much for his uh, contemplation and for uh, how introspective he is. And like this, he said, the Maharaj would say to me, he said, you should associate with them all um, and learn the essence from all of them. One time Maharaj, he told me also to go and see Brahmananda Prabhu in Vrindavan. And it was very, very beautiful. We went to see Brahmananda Prabhu. And um, for four hours straight, he told us about Srila Prabhupada. And two hours into the meeting, uh, Garga Muni Prabhu also came. But when both of them were together, the energy got even higher. And... Uh, such amazing personalities and Maharaj he said you should learn from all of them you should take the essence from all of them and then be yourself he said you will never be them you can't be them these are Vaishnavas of a different caliber you'll never be them but you don't need to be them all you need to do is learn from them and then you need to be yourself and so uh, this individuality is uh, what we're really looking for and so if in Pandavasena we can uh, help each other to find and be our real selves, create a society of non-envy, this was His Holiness Govinda Maharaj, this was one of his main messages, that we must create a society, a, a community of non-envy. When someone comes into a community where they don't feel any envy, 
it empowers them like anything to be themselves. Um, and then they make the greatest contribution. So uh, there's so much variety in Pandavasena. Every time I come in a mentorship, that's confirmed. So many talents, so many individuals doing so many different things um, in so many different arenas. And remember, there's no big or small. Everyone's big. And in another sense, everyone's small. One time a devotee came to Prabhupada and he said, oh, but that devotee is a big devotee. Those are big devotees? Big devotees. So he's not a big devotee. Narad Muni is a big devotee. <laughs> Everyone's small. Who are we? Some may become famous, some may become uh, acclaimed. It's also transient. It's all the river of names just moving along the river. Everyone's big in Krishna's eyes. Everyone's small in the grand scale of things. Um, but in that, we have an opportunity to be our real self. So these are some thoughts I wanted to share with you. And Harsh and Premaraj wanted to show us some of the individuality in Kriyas. Would you like to see? Yes. Oh, they're not sure. Everyone's not sure. After I think you should give them a round of applause. Yeah.